You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to The Daily Briefing. I'm Jack Farley. It's Monday, December 7th. Soon, I'm going to be joined by our managing editor, Ed Harrison. But first, with the day stories, Haley Drasnan. Hey, Jack. Markets were mixed on Monday. Investors were finding few reasons to drive the Dow and the S&P 500 to further record highs. We saw the Dow slipped and the S&P 500 fell slightly, while the tech-heavy Nasdaq rose. Stocks have rallied in recent weeks on prospects of a development in a vaccine, but a continued rise in COVID cases, a weak jobs report that was out on Friday, and a Saturday deadline to pass a fiscal stimulus bill has investors maybe feeling a little more uncertain today. We're expecting to see legislation by a bipartisan group of U.S. senators later today for a relief package around $908 billion. But thinking long term, there remains a lot of support and interest from institutional investors for companies that are impacted by COVID because the feeling is they will recover. That's why we're seeing a busy December with a handful of companies expected to go public this week and by the end of the year. Private companies that maybe sat out of that market chaos in the early days of the pandemic and were awaiting a final outcome in the U.S. election are now rushing to go public. Airbnb and DoorDash will both debut this week. Also on deck are video game company Roblox, as well as Context Logic, which is the parent company of the online retailer Wish. There's a trend here. They're all based in the San Francisco Bay Area and cater to consumers stuck at home with extra time and cash on their hands. The mindset for investors on these IPOs is not that we're in December of 2020 currently right now, but it's how it's going to look a year from now. Airbnb is expected to debut on Thursday. They hiked their IPO price range today between $56 and $60 a share. That's up from $44 and $50. It's aiming to be valued at as much as $42 billion with intentions to sell 50 million shares. That's more than double Airbnb's most recent private valuation of $18 billion in the early weeks of the pandemic in April. It's also a significant premium to the $31 billion price tag that it had secured during a fundraising round in 2017. Airbnb was initially hit hard by global travel restrictions, but has more recently seen a boom in customers seeking longer-term domestic rentals. DoorDash is also expected to debut this week on Wednesday. They, too, upped their IPO pricing range to $90 to $95 per share. That's up from $75 to $85. The company plans to sell 33 million shares and could hit a valuation of about $35 billion. Again, that's more than double the private valuation it hit in a June fundraising round after it had seized on the boom in demand for food and meal delivery. Both of the two startups aim to raise a combined $6 
6.2 billion at the top end of their pricing ranges, and this would help bring December's IPO volume to a record exceeding the 8.3 billion record set in both 2001 and 2003. The methods for potential buyers is being conducted differently than it would have in the pre-COVID world. Airbnb and DoorDash executives have been marketing their offerings to potential IPO investors in Zoom meetings and via an online portal rather than in that typical whirlwind tour across the country. Both Airbnb and DoorDash and their respective underwriters will set their final IPO prices in the coming days. Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs are leading Airbnb's IPO, while Goldman and JPMorgan Chase are leading DoorDash's. Back to you, Jack. Thanks, Haley. Welcome, Ed. Thank you. Uh, and Jack, uh, forgive me if I'm a bit slow today because I'm actually on vacation, as you know, today and tomorrow, but I'm making a special appearance uh, for the daily briefing. Uh, could never turn down the opportunity to talk to you. Oh, I, I honestly did not know that you were on vacation. Uh, that explains why you uh, haven't been responding to my messages. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, thanks so much for joining us um, you know, on your day off. Uh, the markets uh, don't sleep and, and neither do you. Today we had a day that seems like uh, risk off um, with the Dow Jones uh, down, S&P flat, and the NASDAQ um, up. W what did you make uh, of today's market action and you know, what are you seeing? Yeah, so I'm thinking about this from a uh, medium to longer term perspective versus uh, the shorter to medium term perspective where I don't have a whole lot to add value-wise. I think, you know, this is just sort of piggybacking on some of the comments that I made on Friday to Ash, and I think we can do a little bit of a deep dive into this. There's a lot of froth in the market. I think that my general view from a, uh, a medium to longer term perspective is, is, is that we're starting at a relatively high level in terms of PE ratios, in terms of the overall market. We, we're at a very high level relative uh, to other periods in time regardless of whatever metric you're using, whether it's the cyclically adjusted P.E. ratio, you know, forward-looking, backward-looking uh, price-earnings ratios, et cetera. And so the question is, is how do you deal with that, given the fact that we can potentially look through the wintertime into a period that is a post-vaccine pent-up demand period? And so I want to talk a little bit about that use um, a few vehicles. There's the Smart Money Index I want to talk to you about on that. Uh, I want to look at uh, some individual shares uh, that are emblematic of where we are right now, and then maybe use that as a for con context to the conversation that I had with Richard Bernstein. That's the interview that came out today. Right. Well, let's uh, start uh, right away with um, the Smart Money Index. What is that, and uh, what are you seeing in it right now? Yeah, so the Smart Money Index is an index that was created to talk about, you know, where the real money is, the smart money, uh, institutional investors in particular. And the whole concept is, is, is that the markets trade on emotion at the beginning of the day, and at the close of the market, they trade less on emotion, but more on real money. That's where the, the big guys who are not completely emotional are getting into the market. And so the differential between the two gives you the smart money index. Interesting that we have a chart which shows that stocks are near or almost at all-time highs right now. The S&P 500 is trading all the way up uh, to unprecedented levels. 
Whereas, interestingly, at the same time, the smart money index is sinking uh, to near lows. So to me, uh, this dichotomy uh, suggests that we're uh, potentially at a point where there's a uh, there's some sort of event which would create a convergence uh, between those two. So a reversion to the mean, if you will. And it's either the smart money index going up, the S&P 500 going down, uh, or the two meeting in the middle because they both move in some direction. Likely, I think that you will see a meeting in the middle to some degree. Right. Interesting. So uh, I'm looking at this chart now. So when the blue line is at a relatively high level, that means that uh, it's hedge fund managers, the quote, smart money, who are piling into these stocks um, at the last hour of the day. And when that blue line goes down and where we are now at the, you know, about 13,000 level, that means it's, you know, the gamblers who are just uh, buying, you know, not necessarily buying options, but buying um, stocks, buying speculative names who are pushing this um, uh, market higher. I guess intrinsically, you mentioned reversion to the mean. That makes me think that when the smart money index is low, that uh, bodes poorly for equities. Um, and I think that makes sense um, in intrinsically. But yet, it's been a fact that a hallmark of this year has been um, you know, hedge fund uh, managers keeping cash on the sidelines. Meanwhile, it's the retail investors who are making money and, and having a party. Uh, what's, what's your view on that going forward? Yeah, so, I mean, the way I'm thinking about the smart money index is, is, is that it says, you can think of the smart money as uh, w when you see a trend down, as you have from September to December, it says that the trading that's happening at the end of the day is uh, more to sell, to sell winners. So it would suggest that those who uh, have profited and who can see ahead and who are thinking logically, they're sort of cashing out more so than uh, staying with the market. Uh, so it suggests potentially you're at a, a, a um, some sort of inflection point. I think it's interesting if you look at the chart that you uh, that was on screen for the last uh, 52 weeks. Look at that period between uh, December and May. So you were at a medium level uh, in terms of the market, and then you saw a whip sign in the March time frame as people tried to deal with the lockdown and understand what was happening. But then at some point, I think it was in uh, late March when the Fed uh, intervened and the liquidity crisis went away, that index, the smart money index, you know, vaulted higher and it continued to go higher into April. And it sort of stayed in that range all the way to the reopening uh, before it went down a little bit, went back up uh, in August to September timeframe. And then it's just fallen off of a cliff since then. So to me, uh, the the price action that you see, the differential between what happened during the uh, initial phases of the lockdown and now is is stark in terms of the ability to, you know, if you're thinking about uh, an inflection point, they're ex almost mirror opposites of each other. Right, right. Um, I just had a, a, while you were saying uh, what you just said, um, made me think of something, which is, do you think that um, the the retail traders, they, they have more, quote, hot money in terms of they um, are very, uh, willing to sell should things get bad, specifically should macroeconomic data uh, turn bad as as their you know household balance sheets are being crimped and squeezed. Meanwhile, 
hedge fund people, when, when the tough gets going, they, they want to plow in to get the deals. Um, do you think that these, uh, these retail traders are perhaps um, you know, hot money? Well, yeah. I mean, the way that I'm looking at it is that it's a momentum uh, type of thing. Uh, and I think this is the, a good point to bring in these two individual stocks that I'm thinking about, because uh, I thought it was really uh, fascinating. I saw that about a week ago today that Tesla, its market cap exceeded the market cap of Berkshire Hathaway for the first time. And, and so I have uh, the two stocks, you know, four uh, major uh, financial pieces of information on the, four, uh, on the two stocks here, market cap. Uh, the beta of five-year monthly, the P-E ratio, and the earnings per share. So if you look at uh, Tesla as an example, Tesla ha has a $612 billion market cap, beta 2.15, price earnings ratio 1,236, uh, and earnings per share 52 cents per share. And as you were saying, most of those earnings are uh, credits, uh, tax credits, because you know, we uh, subsidize uh, electric vehicles. So they're not really earning a ton of cash. On the other hand, Berkshire Hathaway uh, is worth less at $536 billion. It has a beta below one at 87, and its uh, price earnings ratio is only 15.44, EPS of over 22,000. Now, the uh, what I said to myself is, what if uh, and, you know, just uh, to stop for a second. So this is what I'm, I'm saying is, is that Tesla is going to the moon. It's definitely a bubble. And but, you know, you don't want to get in front of that freight train. Some people want to use the greater fool theory. That is, is, is that, you know, this stock is going up. It's a momentum stock. I'm not in the stock because I think that it's, it's value. It's good money. I'm in the stock because I know that it has a lot of momentum and it has the potential to go higher. So that's the, you know, to answer your question from yeah. before, that's the kind of dynamics that I think that Tesla is showing and, and Berkshire Hathaway doesn't show. But let's just look at the two. What if you take that 15.44 price earnings ratio and then you put it onto uh, Tesla? What kind of earnings per share does Tesla have to get? in order to justify its $612 billion market cap. Uh, what I came out with is they have to have make $40 per share. So essentially, the price earnings ratio of Tesla is 80 times the price earnings ratio of uh, Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, so they have to go from 52 cents a share, everything else being equal, to 80 uh, to $40 a share. Um, so Absolutely. What's the potential that Tesla can get to $40 per share in five years, 10 years, even 20 years uh, in order to justify its market cap of $612 billion? Well, I think know, that Ed, it's yeah, relatively sorry. low. Absolutely. You know, Ed, your line of thinking is very much uh, aligned with uh, Oswath uh, Demoterin, who I saw on um, CNBC last week, who uh, he was asked to say, what are, what are the three stocks which you think are the most emblematic of um, this bubble or, or you know, stocks that are very overvalued? And the, the three stocks he's named were Tesla, Zoom, and Peloton. And about uh, Tesla, he, he said that, you know, I'm beyond saying how much I think it's overvalued or, or what I estimate Tesla to be, because all traditional metrics um, have been belied by the extreme price appreciation we've seen um, over the past two years. Um, 
But with the question that I ask now, and again, this is Oswald Mutter and saying, the question that he asks is, what would have to be true in order for Tesla to be fairly valued? And the answer that he came up with was, it would have to have $500 billion in revenue, and uh, it would have to have the margins of an Apple, a Microsoft, a Google. Um, so I, I think you're saying very much the same thing. You're saying that it, it would have to earn $40 per share, and not on emissions tax credits, but on cold, hard cash. And that's just not something we're seeing. I will say, Ed, uh, and I'm someone who is uh, you know, not necessarily disparaging the, the Tesla vision, but I'm, I'm definitely skeptical of its valuation, like, like many people who are value-oriented. Um, I will say that when compared to its peers, um, you know, Tesla looks like um, Kraft Heinz or, 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 or Berkshire Hathaway. I mean, you know, a, lot, a lot of these pre-revenue companies, companies like uh, Workhorse, like Nikola, um, like Neo, which uh, the, the Chinese company, which is up um, something over 20 times um, over the past two years. Uh, actually, I, I think a great deal more. Um, so I think a, a lot of these, you know, Tesla, it does have revenue and it, it is the leader in the space. To me, the greatest threat to Tesla is not um, these other sort of flash in the pan startups, um, but the legacy automakers, which I know people have been saying that for three years and they've been wrong. Um, but, you know, when you, I, I have a long-term view. Um, if, if I could quickly uh, just mention something. So I'm, I was looking at the different prices uh, of um, electric vehicles today. Tesla was up 7%. Neo was up 5.4%. Uh, uh, Workhorse was down 3%. Uh, Nikola down 3%. So you're seeing a little bit of a flight to quality even among the, uh, the punters. And I don't want to disparage them too much. But one stock that was up a tremendous amount today was um, uh, MP Materials. And it was up 17%. Now, this is not a traditional automaker, but it, uh, it is a rare earths mine. And uh, there's a rare, these two uh, rare earth elements, um, praseodymium, uh, neodymium, um, that are used in all uh, electric motors, whether it's you know, Nikola and its lithium batteries, and Howard Klein's got his you know, lith lithium batteries, or it's um, Nikola and their, uh, or, te or Toyota and their hydrogen powered fuel fuel cells, whatever the motor, whatever the company, they all um, are attached to a motor that requires neodymium, praseodymium. Um, so that is a, is a stock that was uh, just on fire uh, today. Yeah, very interesting because it's all part of the same space. Yeah, Howard Klein, he was saying that uh, he likes the, uh, things like Albemarle because it's in that space, but it's in the lithium space. Uh, he was talking about... Uh, the company that you you were mentioning, uh, saying that it was brought to market via a SPAC, and you know it's more speculative. Uh, I don't think he was exactly uh, overjoyed in thinking that it was it was good money value. He was thinking Albemarle, as an example, is is a much better value if you put the numbers that you have on on your company on his company. Uh, it, you know, there's a huge amount of appreciation you could get over the next you know 12, 18, 24 months. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, um, so 
I actually interviewed the, the CEO of uh, MP Materials, Jim Latinsky, and, and that airs tomorrow. And just in doing research, uh, one graphic I came across was that I think lithium, the price of lithium could increase more than the price of uh, praseodymium, neodymium. However, I think the attractive reason to own um, MP Materials is that it's the only rare earth mine of any scale of, or integration um, in the Western Hemisphere. 80, over 80% 80 of it is, uh, is mined and, and refined um, in China. So that's something that's uh, key to Jim Latinsky's vision as well. Um, I actually, uh, I, was, I was, you know, editorial on um, your interview with Howard Klein. And I, I think that both Howard Klein and Jim Latinsky have uh, very compelling visions. I, I, you know, if, if you're someone who you believe uh, in the trend of electri electrification and electric vehicles, but you don't want to buy these companies trading at, you know, valuations that make you want to throw up. Um, then you should, you could, you know, go go into uh, uh, these mining stocks that are basically the elements of the future that are required in order to to build these. You know, Tesla may make money, Nikola may make money. I mean, who knows? Um, but whoever is the winner and whoever is the loser, they're going to be buying lithium from Albemarle. They're going to be buying neodymium, praseodymium from um, MP Materials. So it's, it's a very interesting space and and ultimately at the end of the day you know it's not about companies being bad it's about prices being bad exactly. whether or not the price is reflective of the the underlying fundamentals and i think uh you know going back to the whole thing the conversation about tesla it's definitely you know the it, it's a big stretch to get to the underlying fundamentals given the market cap essentially you're going to be uh, getting no return over the next 5, 10, 20 years in order for it to grow into a market cap to trade even similar to something like Berkshire Hathaway, which is where Apple just um, you know several years ago was trading with uh, a P.E. ratio of 15. So it makes me think about um, the Bernstein interview that I did today, I did and that came out today. And he was talking about the rotation trade. Basically, he was talking about value and cyclicals over uh, growth and uh, non-cyclicals. And I think you don't really necessarily have to be, you know, pro or anti the market per se to think that there is that uh, there's a potential move afoot going forward. You know, going back to that uh, that SMI, the Smart Money Index, and then mm -hmm. versus the S and P. If you were to have a pairs trade of the likes of Berkshire Hathaway versus Tesla, obviously Berkshire Hathaway being the value and Tesla being the growth stock, I think that over time that that's going to work for you. Um, I, I'm thinking of four different company types. There's one which is the large cap tech, and that's usually the Fang stocks. These are the, the Fab Five, as uh, Richard Bernstein called them. You know. We're talking about Facebook, Apple, yep. Alphabet. Uh, we're talking about Netflix, uh, Google, and uh, or, or rather Amazon. And and then on the other side, we're talking about uh, growth company or, or value companies. And, and when I say value, energy companies and financials in particular. Uh, Richard Bernstein was saying. And then you have the cyclical companies. And cyclical companies. He was saying you want to buy them when they're trading at a PE of 90 as opposed to nine, because that's when you get the the pop in, in the earnings part. It's about the denominator and the numerator at the same time. So uh, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, uh, sorry to interrupt. I, I heard you say that before about you want to buy it at 90 rather than nine. I'm not sure I wrap my head around that yet. Can you could you break that down a little bit? 
Yeah, so when the price-to-earnings ratio is uh, 90, that means that the earnings have dropped so precipitously relative to the price that you have a 90 price-to-earnings ratio. Just to use some uh, basic math, say that uh, the, uh, the earnings are 10 and the price is 900. So uh, the 10 compared to the 900, you're thinking, wow, this stock is overvalued, but really, uh, that's a stock that maybe has a normalized earnings level of something in the order of 115 or 120. So the the earnings have been crushed. They're down 85, 90 percent. So going from a level of uh, 90 times earnings with uh, 900 price and, and 10 on the earnings can go to earnings of 120 over uh, 900, and that's less than nine. That's mm. more in the in the order of eight. Uh, and and so obviously you can get if you bought it at nine, you would still make the pickup from there, and then it could continue on uh, from there. So that's what he was talking about. That makes sense. I think a few of stocks I've studied in the past um, that have had tremendous uh, downfalls. Uh, a company like Valiant Pharmaceutical comes to mind. They tend to have a very good price-to-earnings ratio right before um, they tank. And, and uh, Jim Chanos, in his interview with Mike Green, was saying that IBM, it looks like a uh, value stock. It's got a price-to-earnings ratio of 14, 16, something like that. And to someone like me, who you know, three to four years ago, I was just getting into investing, and I'd say, oh, I want to buy stocks that have a low price-to-earnings ratio, because I like earnings, and I don't like paying for it. Uh, well, it's a little bit more complicated. And um, you know, I don't, I don't want to get into Jim Chanos's uh, thesis on IBM here, but yeah, I, I think that's such an interesting point, um, not just about the value growth, but about cyclicals, non-cyclicals. I also might add that the Fang stocks are—they um, are very richly valued, but they are high-quality businesses that have proven themselves. Whereas the Zooms of the world, the Snowflakes of the world, the Pelotons of the world, and even the Teslas of the world, although you know, sure, it may be more valuable than Berkshire Hathaway. Its founder, its CEO may be, have a higher net worth than Warren Buffett. Um, but the business model has not, has not proven itself yet. So yes, I like um, a, you said a long something and a short Tesla. What, what was what you said specifically? I was talking about Berkshire versus Tesla. Oh, Tesla, oh yeah. A potential trade. And you know, uh, where, where Tesla lies uh, in terms of the, uh, the stocks du jour, I'm not sure, but you have the bubble stocks, and I think I would probably put Tesla into the bubble stock as opposed to the fangs. And then you have the fangs, the large cap tech, those are the growth stocks, versus the cyclicals and the value stocks on the other side. And so uh, being able to pair those doesn't necessarily mean that you're short the market per se, or that, you say, or that you're saying the market will go down. It's just saying that you think that there's a rotation that will happen uh, from these stocks that have been benefiting now to these uh, stocks that will benefit uh, later and over the medium to the long term. And you know, I started this out by saying that everyone's thinking about the pandemic because we still have to, we have a hurdle to get over. I was saying to you right before we came on that the UK, they're the first Western right. country that is taking a vaccine and is really uh, doing something with the vaccine en masse starting tomorrow. And so people, all eyes are on the UK to find out how that goes. Because between uh, now and, and, uh, and when they get into gear, there's a, a, a gulf that we have to uh, travel. 
I'll give you an example that if you look at the Atlanta Fed's GDP now uh, forecast, it's 11.2 percent uh, uh, annualized growth for Q4. That's huge. Um, coming down from 30-some percent, which is also huge. But that number is, is going to continue to tank and tank. And it, it's possible that that number could go negative, given the shutdowns that we're having. It's certainly the case in Europe that the numbers have been negative. But that's only over a short period of time. So the question is, when do you start making this rotation? Uh, all the people who made the rotation in November did really well, because the small cap uh, the uh, the value stocks they really outperformed in November. Uh, if we have this bad patch in the United States in particular, can they still outperform? And my answer to that is yes. That the rotation is in full force and it has legs. It will have legs through this bad period and then on to the other side. Yes, um, that's a very compelling case. And I might add and tell me if if I'm correct that you. What you just said is is not necessarily a macro view. You're saying that cyclicals and value will outperform non-cyclicals and growth, but you're not necessarily saying that cyclicals and value will increase. You'll just say that they will perform attractively relative to those their counterparts. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And you know, even if you don't take a bullish view on the economy, that is, uh, if you look on the on the backside of the uh, long cold winter, and you say that actually p growth will be punk. Well, that's an economy where uh, we've opened up. We're in a normal situation, so to speak. Uh, this whole stay at home uh, stuff is going to be less important. So the premium that you're putting at stay at home stocks or for uh, is, is not necessarily going to be there. I think that there is uh, some uh, some something to be had from making that rotation trade, both in good times and in bad times. Uh, and so I think that it, it's worth taking a look at. And in particular, even in particular, if you're looking at it from a, uh, a good times perspective, the question that I have, and I, this is a, a chart that I showed you earlier. Let me explain what I'm thinking about with the chart is the, uh, the uh, cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio. Mm -hmm. It's this chart that ends with 33.4 on the, the right side of the chart. So that 33.4 number, that's where we are from a cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio. That's over the last 10 years, the earnings, um, uh, the price compared to those earnings over the last 10 years, the average earnings. 33.4 is basically higher than every single uh, peak that we've ever had except for during the bubble the internet bubble. It's higher than the 1929 peak. Uh, it's higher than the uh, Nifty 50s peak. So it's it's enormous, uh, the, the levels that we're starting from. And even before, if you look at this chart, when we went down to, say, 25 times on the cyclically adjusted P-E ratio in March, we were yeah. still at 25 every single period except for a brief period uh, during the housing bubble and during the tech bubble and then during the roaring 20s was below uh, that level. So even at its best, from a cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio, the market is, relatively speaking, highly valued. I have a question, Ed. Um, when you say cyclically, and I should know this, when it's cyclically adjusted, is that adjusting for growth? Is that adjusting for interest rates? Because I feel yeah, like when so interest rates are this low. Adjusted means taking the last 10 years of earnings. 
and and getting the average of that because what that allows you to do is say that on average you're going to get at least one business cycle during that 10-year period and as a result you're going to go through a bad patch of earnings so it's not like uh, the example that I gave you with a cyclical that's trading at nine times PE versus 90 times. Both of those uh, data points will be in that 10-year period, and you can average it out. And therefore, you don't have to worry about where you are in the cycle. So that's what the, the CAPE is doing for you. It's telling you that I don't care where I am in the cycle. This is a number that I could use at all parts of the cycle. You know, some people have problems with it, but it is good in terms of getting rid of the, the problem that you and I were just talking about with regard to cyclicals. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Right, right. The thing that pops into my mind instantly when I see this chart is that, oh, man, oh, man, how overvalued were things in 2000? If the cyclically adjusted price uh, earnings ratio was higher than it is now, and we're at essentially zero interest rates, not zero, but essentially zero, um, when I, I don't know what they were at 2000, but they... Uh, Four, four to seven percent, something like that. So that's my first reaction. But then my my second thought is, um, I, is this this is the, of the S and P, right? That's right. Okay. So I think a lot the snowflakes of the world and the neos of the world, a Chinese automaker, um, the Nikolas of the world, they are not included in the S and P. I, I think there are a lot of companies that aren't in the S and P that are, uh, if not. Uh, pre-revenue than pre-profit that are having heavy losses. And the companies that are, the companies that are some value stocks, um, they have you know very impaired um, balance sheets. I actually was uh, reading the Bloomberg credit newsletter today, and the number of companies with negative EBITDA nearly doubled in the third quarter, from 26 in the second quarter to 47 in the third quarter. So that's kind of, you know for the last section of this uh, conversation, uh, Ed, I want to uh, sort of pick your brain on uh, what do you make of the credit markets? Because the credit markets, on the one hand, what, you, what you're seeing in terms of the balance sheet strength uh, is is very weak with a, you know these negative EBITDA um, getting, getting worse and worse. But at the same time, we're seeing this acceleration of the dynamic where um, record issuance, record low uh, spreads and high, yield to worst on, on high yield bonds, I think at 4.39%. Option-adjusted yield to worst spread on high yield. Um, CLO issuance will exceed eighty billion dollars for the year, higher than twenty sixteen. So we're we're having this sort of, uh, you know, it, to say bifurcated would, would be an ultimate understa understatement between the um, strength of the underlying fundamentals and the ease with which people are just throwing cash out the door um, in order to buy this, um, you know, these bonds and fixed income products which don't yield a lot and have a fair amount of risk. What do you think? So, yeah, I think that's where the rubber hits the road in terms of the short to medium term, uh, where I think that the damage can be done to uh, your investments is in companies that uh, have poor balance sheets in particular. This isn't even talking about the bubble stocks, per se. I'm talking about companies that are normal companies that uh, are going to be negatively affected 
uh, enough that are close enough to the edge and will be negatively affected long enough so that what we're seeing in the UK with their vaccine rollout wouldn't help them. Uh, we've already seen companies like that. Arcadia uh, went, uh, went bust. Debenhams is, uh, is another retailer that went bust. People are talking about taking them over. So you want to avoid being uh, leveraged to companies of that nature. And I think that there are more companies like that than we think that there are, per se. So that's perhaps where you're going to see the, uh, the problems, irrespective of the number of companies that are trading for 50, 60, 70 cents on the dollar. There are still others that are, as uh, Boaz Weinstein was telling me, trading at levels that are relatively uh, high. Uh, compared to companies that have much better balance sheets. Those companies will not do well uh, during this particular three-month, uh, four-month period. That's really interesting, Ed. I've got a question, which is, how do you uh, value these companies according to how much debt they have on their balance sheet versus their ability to consistently earn money? I'm going to guess that there is a pretty high correlation between companies that are indebted and companies that are you know, value companies, companies like Ford and GM, which uh, AT&T, which are extremely, which are heavily indebted. And yet, you know, if uh, for a novice investor who's doing a little screening of price to earnings ratio, they, they seem like uh, bargains and perhaps they are, or perhaps they're value traps. How can you just tie, you know, as we end, end this conversation, Ed, can you tie in your, uh, your theory about, and your, your thesis about, um, you know, the, cyclicals and, and um, value versus non-cyclicals and growth. How does that tie into the balance sheet of company, balance sheets of companies? Well, you know, I'll, I'll use two companies in the, uh, the growth side as an example. There was, I think, um, the guy's name was Ravi Sutra, if I'm correct, who was a convertibles analyst back uh, in the, the bubble days, like 2000, 2001, who said that Amazon uh, because they had been issuing convertible debt that given their burn rate, they wouldn't be able to pay back their convertible uh, bonds and that they could potentially go bankrupt. And a lot of people took this uh, seriously. Amazon's share price was negatively affected by it. Bezos was upset, et cetera. You know, I think that was the beginning of uh, Amazon really deciding, okay, we're not going to just go for growth. We actually now have to show that we can shut off the uh, CapEx, and then we can actually show that uh, we can earn money. Uh, that's what happened to Amazon, and they got through that period, and they've gone on to bigger and better things repeatedly to the point where they're one of the most highly valued companies in the world. Uh, three or four years ago, Tesla was in the exact same situation, and I use that uh, example uh, at credit write-downs saying that this is a, a, a do-or-die moment for Tesla in the exact same way it was for Amazon, that they have these convertibles, uh, and if they can't show that they can make the grade to the next level, they won't be able to roll over that debt and uh, the, they could go bust. So for them, this is their Amazon moment. And they passed that Amazon moment with flying colors, and it was from that period on that they you know, were off to the races. So a lot of people uh, could consider Tesla the new Amazon. They're thinking of, of Tesla as the new Amazon. Obviously, you know, it's not really the new Amazon because there's a huge amount of CapEx uh, you know, that's required relative to 
the actual production on an ongoing basis, whereas Amazon's CapEx was growth CapEx. But the point being is, is that you can be a growth company and uh, you can still have um, a, a be imperiled by having a poor balance sheet. Uh, it's all about how much cash you have, you know, your cash burn, uh, the debt that you have that you have to roll over. So even if you uh, don't have a lot of debt, you can still, as a as a as a growth company, be imperiled by a cyclical downturn. And we saw that in the 2000s when all those internet companies went bust. We saw that with Amazon when they made the grade and were able to power forward. We saw that with Tesla again in the sort of 2017 period, 2018. Uh, and so I think that it gives you an example that it's not just about the uh, value companies and the cyclical companies. Even growth companies have these things to take care of. It's cash on your balance sheet. It's your uh, burn rate. And it's also uh, your debt load. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good framework. Um, we'll we're, we're running a little bit low on time, so I think we'll have to end it there. Um, but Ed, thanks so much, as always. You bet. And as always, it's great to talk to you, Jack. Great. You know, I, I just uh, real quick, I think, um, you know, on CNBC, uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin and Rick Santelli sort of had their their little clash about, um, you know, the, the reopening and stuff. So I don't know if it's going to be you and me or uh, me and Ash or Ash and you. But, uh, you know, sometimes we're going to have to get that high drama into the uh, real vision. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we have it in us. Jack. No, I don't, I don't think so, especially at this end of the year. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.